Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of the disappointment of the men's ashes, surely men's test cricket can only get better from here for England. Sportsbreak.com are offering a once-in-a-lifetime cricketing experience. They're supplying packages to Barbados, one of the bucket list cricket events that is England on tour in the Caribbean. Sportsbreaks.com are offering personalised ticket, travel and hotel packages around the Barbados test match from the 16th to 20th of March this year. That includes 10 nights in one of their hand-picked hotels with breakfast included from the 13th of March. Return flights to Barbados from Manchester or London Heathrow, including all taxes, charges and 23 kilos of hold luggage allowance. A five-day standard ticket for the Kensington Oval. Airport transfers by coach transfers to and from the stadium and with sportsbreaks.com if the event is cancelled or moved to an alternative date you will receive a full refund to book your package or to find out more head to sportsbreaks.com all the info will be in the description as usual hello and welcome to the wisdom cricket weekly podcast we've got loads to get through today we'll be talking about the start of england's t20i series in the caribbean the rain affected women's ashes the extraordinary statement released this morning by Zimbabwe's Brendan Taylor, the South Africa India ODI series, and more. We'll also spend a section of the show living out our collective fantasy by pretending to be England selectors for the upcoming Test Tour of the Caribbean. Uh, and we also have an interview with the author Duncan Stone about his new book, Different Class The Untold Story of English Cricket. I'm Yaz Rana, and with me this morning is the magazine editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, the managing editor of Wisden.com, Ben Gardner, and the editor-in-chief of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. Um, let's kick things off by going straight to Mark Butcher, who's out there in Barbados to talk about the opening T20Is between England and West Indies. It's 1-1 after two games. England were thrashed in the opener and won the second by one run after a world record ninth wicket stand between Akil Hussain and Romario Shepard got the hosts very, very close indeed. But you're out there in Barbados at the moment. England were bowled out for 103 in that first game. Is that just one of those things that happens every now and then in T20 cricket, particularly when you've not had that much preparation? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose 
preparation-wise, England were actually quite happy with with how things had gone for them. They had that um, they had that warm-up match. Jason Roy made the thirty-six ball hundred, and you know I think they were they were pretty happy going into the game in terms of in terms of their warm-ups. Um, they just came across a surface that was um, that was tricky to say the very least. And uh, you know, very much in the in the in the way that that England go about their their T Twenty cricket, they kind of you know it was kind of they just kept banging away, didn't they? It was, it, rather than sort of go, okay, well this surface is uh, is not going to allow us to to go along at nine, ten, eleven runs and over. They uh, they tried to force that and uh, and fell comfortably short of what a par score might have been on that surface, which I think was probably about one thirty to one forty. Um, and they admitted as much afterwards. Um, it was, you know, it was a bit of a disappointment, I suppose, given given that um, the white ball team was supposed to to make everybody feel much better after the Ashes collapses, and then they went and did the same thing um, themselves in the first game. But um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, it's a five match series. You kind of you've got time to get back into it. But there was a lesson there, wasn't there, for tournament play? And I think Owen Morgan alluded to as much in the in the post match interview that. You know, you're gonna you're gonna lose tosses. You're gonna end up batting first, but you'd rather bowl. Um, you're gonna come up on surface that surfaces that aren't great, and they've got to find a way of being able to make enough runs um, batting first in those circumstances to give the bowlers a chance in the in the uh, you know in the in the, in the defence. Um, and to be fair to them, they did that much better in game two. Mm. Why do you think that sides like England have such a preference for chasing? You get the sense that they're they're not that comfortable setting a total. They sometimes don't really know what a good total is. Yeah, well, I, I think that goes for for most teams, doesn't it? Now, um, you know, in the in the in the old days, in the, the beginning of T Twenty, and certainly in in longer form um, limited overs cricket, run, the old adage of runs on the board and you know the, the apply pressure in the run chase was uh, you know was gospel, but that's been flipped on its head. For quite some time now, I know that there are there are people more statistically minded that will be able to, <laughs> that will be able to tell us um, exactly exactly why that is. I think that there is a fear that you're never going to get enough batting first, whereas batting second, you kind of go, well, if we need to go at twelves, then so be it. You know, um, the the modern player and the modern um, the modern way of thinking is much more geared towards being able to chase anything down um, and not really having that much of an idea how many is enough batting first. Mm. Is it anything to do with conditions, do you think, just in terms of it's just slightly harder to bowl with the wet ball, particularly in day-night games? Or um, I know during the T20 World Cup, people were talking about pitches becoming slightly easier to bat as the dew came down, there's a bit more pace in the wicket. Especially yesterday, it was a little bit too paced in the first innings and it looked like it was slightly easier to bat in the second. Owen Morgan, I think, alluded to that when he talked to you at the end of the game. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 think, that's, I think that's without a doubt. You know, you, you start late on in the afternoon, particularly in... in Hot countries, you know, the, the, the pitches, they start just, the, the ball just grips a little bit more batting first. And then that, uh, that element disappears when, when there's a little bit of moisture around later. You know, you add to that, the ball goes into the outfield, gets a little bit wet. You know, the, it, it just things become much harder to control in that second half. Um, and, you know, in some parts of the world, that is, that, that's worse than others. Mm. Um, but that's certainly, yeah, I mean, you make a valid point. That's certainly part of it. Um, and you know, I don't know. It this kind of it, it seems it seems a little bit unfair, doesn't it? You're kind of deciding World Cups and you're deciding um, tournaments based on conditions that are that are very different 
from from one side of the game to the next. It doesn't it doesn't seem to be right. Um, what the solution to that is, however, I have no idea. What well, one other thing on conditions, I guess. I must admit, I didn't really enjoy a lot of yesterday's game just because of how much the game was dictated by the ground's dimensions. Like, it's just not quite as fun when bowlers are just hiding the ball miles outside off stump and batters are shuffling so far across every single ball. It's just not, it's just almost too repetitive. You kind of, you like watching T20 cricket because you're not quite sure what the bowler's going to do. But when you kind of have an idea what they're going to do every single ball, it's not, not quite as fun to watch. Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, again, again, I'm not entirely sure what the... <laughs> what the solution is to that particular problem. Um, you know, they moved, they moved what, two, two pitches, two pitches over, two pitches to the left of the, of the first game on Saturday. Um, and in doing so, you end up with a, with a very, very short boundary on one side. Uh, the, other, the bigger factor, I think, possibly, was not so much the boundary dimensions, but the way the wind was. Um, I went a bit nuts about Chris Jordan's six over extra cover yesterday because, I mean, seriously, the, the boundary was what I don't know nine, ninety yards or ninety yards out to extra cover the way he was hitting it, but he was also hitting it into this howling wind that was straight. It was an extraordinary strike. Um, that wind had dropped a little bit by sort of you know later on in, in the evening, so it wasn't quite such a, a big ask to hit it for six in that direction. But um, but certainly in the first innings when England were batting, it was uh, you know they, they tried to hit everything. To the other side of the ground, and again, I think if they if they were really really harsh on themselves, they got to 171. Um, they said the pitch was a little bit tricky. It was a hell of a lot better than the one the, the day before, and they still made 171. And they also had the issue with the you know the short side and the wind and all the rest of it. And if they were really harsh on themselves, they'd go, you know what, we got so preoccupied with trying to hit it to the short side that we missed out on a lot of you know, nudge it into nudge it into the long side. The West Indies were, were fielding right back on the fence. You know, they could have run the ball around a little bit more, you know, treat it a little bit more like a game at the, at the MCG on one side of the pitch where you're always going to get twos. You might even get the odd three. Um, and that 171 might have ended up being 185. And then, you know, as it was, it was enough. Because, mm. you know, the, even though, even though the, the, the margin was only one run in the end, um, Knowing that you couldn't lose in the in the last whatever three games it was, it kind of took some of the edge off. Um, mm. Although I think Saki Mahmood and uh, <laughs> and Owen Morgan would have been much happier if they'd found the odd Yorker in that in that time and kind of you know put it to bed um, by by a bigger margin. Yeah, it was, it was the first ever one sided one run win. Um, just on a couple of England players have had a couple of good games. Uh, I think one of them is Liam Livingston, who hasn't actually played at all. I just think it's quite interesting that. England have chosen to replace him with Liam Dawson, that they replace him with a bowling all round. It kind of shows how important he is to England's T20 side at the moment. Um, but also I thought Reese Topley was really good last night. Obviously the run out was amazing. The flick with his right hand to dislodge the bales probably didn't have enough time to actually pick the ball up. But with the ball, I thought he was really sharp, hitting the high 80s, um, got the ball, new ball to swing, nailed his Yorkers, yeah. kept his cool at the end. And he conceded just eight off that penultimate over, which in the end was actually pivotal. Yeah, it was huge. Um, yeah, I, th- I, I think he's a fantastic bowler. Um, you know, it, again, in the Caribbean, sort of having tall guys is, is very important um, in, in long form and short form cricket. Pitches tend to react a lot more, with, you know, when the ball comes down from a, from a great height. Um, the, the swing that he got with a new ball and the lengthy bowled and, and the attacking um, option that he gave Owen Morgan um, against the West Indies top order was, was absolutely pivotal. 
And you know, the run out wasn't actually necessary because it was it would have been out LBW, wouldn't it? He was dead. They hit him on the boot before um uh before Shea Hope got the got the bat down on it and he would have been absolutely stone dead LBW. So his analysis would have looked even better um had it not been for <laughs> had it not been for the run out. So yeah, he had a he had a fantastic night. Um and again, you know, if you're looking for Oh, Morgan's always looking for sort of incremental um, positives. Um, one was the, the way that they managed to make 170 batting first. Um, 64 for two, they were at halfway. Um, and so they went, went kind of nuts in the second half. Um, and it could have been more. Uh, and then Rashid and, and Mo and Ali were, were sensational. I mean, they've kind of, they've got the, they've got the, um, the, the Indian sign over, over the West Indies batting, haven't they? Um, and you know that that kind of was what won the, won them the game in the chase. And you're right, Reese Topley uh, was uh, was quite brilliant. Mm. Um, and then West Indies, they they nearly won it. Akil Hussain and Romario Shepherd putting together the highest ninth wicket stand in a T20I between two full member nations. What do you think went wrong from England at the at the end? Death bowling has been a problem for a little bit. And I know that Owen Morgan said at the end of the game that it is the hardest job in T20 cricket, but I think England are probably worse than most of their competitors at, at this moment. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was it was a little bit painful to watch, wasn't it? Um, you know, Chris Jordan had ended up with an over left. And whether or not that was, you know, that was Owen going, OK, Saki, it's time for you to to show us what you can do. We know we know about CJ. Let's let's have Saki. Let's see Saki and have a go. But you know, I asked him the question in the um, in the post match presentation. You know, where were the Yorkers? And he said, to be honest, we were trying to bowl them. We just couldn't. Just kept missing. Um, and that is a that's a huge concern. Um, and again, if you if I suppose if you're always asking your your batting side, and this this part partly feeds into the whole thing about batting first for, for teams, but particularly for England. If you're always asking your batting side to, to score maybe fifteen to twenty five more runs than par, because you're not you're not that happy about the way that you're going to be able to bowl at the death, you're going to come a cropper every once in a while, aren't you? you can't always um, you can't always score more runs than the, than the pitch is is allowing you to get. So. Um, a harsh lesson, I suppose. And, and I, I guess, again, it's, it's one of those things where it's good that that's happened early on in a five-match series. They can you know, have a real good chat about it, really focus on it again in, in training. I'm sure they do anyway, but it just it drives it home. It drives home the point that you're kind of never safe um, mm. in, uh, in T20 cricket. And, and the West Indies lower order, the, the, the youngsters there, my God, that hitting was unbelievable. Uh, from Akil Hussain and, and Romario Shepherd. Odin Smith is somebody that you think, well, you know, if anybody can hit six sixes and over, it's going to be him. He's just a complete nutcase uh, with massive pair of shoulders and in a back speed to die for. So, um, you know, if, if West Indies top order can give themselves a little bit of a foothold in games, then um, they're, they're going to be a very dangerous team. Mm. There were probably a lot of English fans watching yesterday being like, Tom Curran's gone the distance for a long time for England in T20 cricket to death. Chris Jordan's gone the distance for a long time for England in T20 cricket to death. Skiba Mood had a bit of a nightmare yesterday. Um, but you watch a lot of T20 cricket, you watch a lot of the 100. Are there other guys out there or are, are those three three of the best five in have. Obviously, you've got Archer and Mills who are currently injured. Yeah, I mean, those two, the two you mentioned that aren't playing uh, would obviously help the problem out, wouldn't they? Um, you know, the, he was the first person I thought of yesterday was Tamar Mills. Um, you know, you've got those you've got lower order players sort of setting themselves to, to hit big 
um, you know, left arm 90 miles an hour with, with back of the hand slower balls, you're thinking that's not quite so straightforward. Um, but yeah, it, it is a bit of a, a bit of a problem. I mean, there's one thing if you, if the Yorker doesn't go in or you can't, if you can't get that Yorker to go in and it's, it's very difficult, um, granted, then you're sort of thinking to yourself, well, I mean, what else can the, what else can the bowlers and the captain do? You know, the odd bumper, you know, you do, you are allowed to bowl, bowl a bouncer, at least put something in the mind of the batsman that the ball is not always going to be in the kill zone. You know, it's not always going to be length or, or thereabouts. Um, I think, you know, England were, the ball ended up just in the same place. Every ball off the ball, off the ball, off the ball. Um, and these guys set themselves baseball style and just nail it out of the park. So again, if you, you, you're not always going to be able to get the Yorker in, but I'm, but I'm pretty sure that you can be a little bit less predictable in terms of what you do, um, you know, bowling those, those last couple of overs. And sometimes the batters are going to tag you. That's, that's, that's a given. Um, but I think... I think it was a little too easy for the West Indies at the back end, notwithstanding the fact that the hitting was absolutely out as well. Cheers, Butch. Chat to you next week. Phil, what's your moment of the week? Uh, well, there's two actually. Talia um, McGrath was uh, a name that I'd only recently come to um, and indeed quite a few people following the women's game knew of her from 2017 when she briefly featured in Australia's T20 side, but she'd kind of gone under the radar until returning a few months ago and making some waves against India in the autumn. Um, she came into the first T20i against England, um, not really sure where she was going to bat, at Adelaide, her home ground. Um, and she put in one of the all-time great individual T20 performances. At least Perry was on the bench, controversially, uh, but it wasn't so controversial by the end of the game because you saw that Australia have unearthed another real serious talent. She's 26 years old um, and she bowls kind of useful medium medium pace, heavy balls. She's, she's kind of strapping, tall, strong. She bowls heavy ball, medium pace, first change. And she came out at number three, uh, batting alongside Meg Lanning um, and just hit a superb 90-odd, 91 not out it was. To knock off England's target of 170 and, and, and a few more uh, with embarrassing ease, really. And it was interesting from an English perspective that they put together a decent score. It could have been more, actually. Danny Wyatt was playing very well um, up top and they were probably in a position to maybe even push on to 180, 185. But even, even with 171, I think it was, uh, Australia just cruised it really and it was largely down to McGrath that she was absolutely brilliant um, uh, immensely strong through the offside you know stayed hit uh, she paced her innings and it got to a point uh, where England just didn't have a clue what to do anymore um, and everything they tried just 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 went the distance really um, and it was the first of three T20 games between the two, um, but it's the only game that's been completed because the rains have come. And unfortunately, with the test match in Canberra due to kick off Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, there's more rain around for that four-day game, uh, which again throws into into question the the, the logic of, of women's cricket, uh, women's first-class test match cricket played over four days when the game is... Um, a little bit slower than the men's, you know, that run rates are slower and, and, and with a bit of rain around, it does beg the question after four consecutive draws between the two teams and a, a large percentage of test matches, women's test matches being draws anyway, it does beg the question why there isn't that fifth day. 
but maybe we can come back to that in a bit. And my other one, um, and I'd already given you that one this morning before I saw the the, the rousing news, news. Yeah, the rousing news that my boy Murray Erasmus, um, who I just like to. I just I'd like him to just come round for supper and we'll have a chat about life, love and the universe. Uh, and he was made for the third time the ICC's umpire of the year uh, in their awards at the end of the year. Uh, and quite right too. He's an absolute diamond. He had a belter of a of a home series as well against, um, well, obviously South Africa against uh, India, and uh, and he managed to kind of find a perfect sort of balance as well between being kind of clubbable and also, of course, being a top-class umpire. Um, he was as shocked by one uh, DRS decision as, as the Indian side, just actually saying, you know, this is impossible over the <laughs> microphone. He's got a great kind of avuncular way about him. He gets he gets very, very few decisions wrong. Um, How do you think they decide that award? Because they have, they have the stats. They know your percentage. But is it by, do you reckon it's based purely on that or is it more what he kind of bring to the game which obviously he, he gets bonus points for that in a way that few umpires I, I assume it's it's down to the to the to the stats and maybe uh captain's reports as well at the end of at the end of the game I think in England when Michael Goff wins it every year that is that that's is player down voted. to the numbers yeah, yeah that's the players yeah mm. um well back back to the the women's ashes um, there's an amazing <laughs> amazing stat from Hypo Course who is an essential follow on Twitter if you follow your women's cricket. Um, so he tweeted, there have been 142 women's test matches played overall. There have been seven to feature three declared innings. There have been 2,433 men's test matches. Only six have featured three declared innings. Um, so that's arguing in favour of there being five right. day tests. And I guess like e- even if you start with four and if there's rain around, I don't really get why you go can't do what we had for the World Test Championship final where you have a reserve day if rain's going to going to have a big impact um there's a bit of rain in the england india test match in the summer um you mentioned elise perry not playing um what i thought was quite interesting is that if you looked at the recent numbers it made complete sense that perry wouldn't play but still to actually drop a player who's got that record that record of succeeding in ashes matches as well like her decline actually hasn't been that long so to be brave enough to still drop someone like perry is actually kind of Quite an alpha move shows shows how strong Australia are at the moment. Yeah, and I think um, Matthew Mott got interviewed during their coach got interviewed during the game and was spoke about it very clearly in a way that you don't often hear selection decisions explained quite like that. He just said if she's not going to bat in the top order, then her strike rate basically isn't good enough to have a middle order spot. And you mm. know that that completely was was shown to be the case. Um, I mean, she'll still have a pass, but she'll obviously be crucial in the Test match, and she's still T Twenties has always been her the the weaker part of her game. Um, but yeah, their, their their strength is a bit is a bit terrifying. England did look really toothless, I, I have to say, uh, with the ball. Um, uh, Sarah Glenn went the distance very slow out of the hand, and it felt like the Aussies could could you know camp on the back foot, wait for it. Even decent length deliveries, they were just sitting up and begging on that kind of track. Um, not a massive amount of pace through the air either uh, with the seamers, and so for all the the big talk. Uh, it's going to be a very, very, very long um, tour for them, you fear. Uh, also, you'd have to say, you'd think T20s were probably England's best chance, yeah. really. I mean, Australia's ODI record is is kind of relentlessly brilliant, isn't it? And they've got the better of them in Test cricket recently as well. So you kind of feel like their best chance might have already passed them by. Hopefully well, not. But If they don't win the Test, they'll have to... Well, if, so, so if the Test is drawn, they have to win the ODIs 3-0, won't they, to to reclaim the ashes which is a very very tough ask considering that australia basically never lose odis but 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, but yeah, that that first game was just everything that's terrifying about Australia women's cricket, right up to Meg Lanning at the end, just ruthlessly denying uh, Talia McCraw that hundred. Uh, when and we couldn't work out which would be more sort of psychologically damaging to England, like that complete remorseless sort of like we don't care about milestones, we just care about grinding you down, or the fact that they could she she could have easily toyed with England to the point of turning down runs or taking singles when boundaries are an offer to get McGrath that milestone, but. Either way, it would have been pretty. She doesn't do sentiment, I don't think. No, Meg Lanning. Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting as well that not only McGrath, so McGrath, as Phil, you said, she played a little bit of international cricket quite a long time ago. Now comes back into the side, age twenty six. Alana King, not played international cricket before in Australia, is very comfortable being like, yeah, our, our players haven't played international cricket. They're, they're good enough to start in an Ashes against one of the best sides in the world straight away. And, and she, she changed the game, by the way, yeah. Alana King. You know, brilliant little leggy. Um, came on at a quite crucial juncture with England going well and, and changed the, the tempo of the game. Mm. Yeah, they just have a conveyor belt of quality, really. And, mm. and and they are the benchmark. The question is just how far down the line are they compared to other teams? Um, and yeah, you always do fear, I think, a little bit for England when they go up against them, especially in their home conditions. It's not over yet by any means, but England needed to register... Uh, a good result, a good performance, I think, in one of those second or third games. And, of course, they were they were pissed on. So that's that, unfortunately. Mm. Um, it's a very, very tough ask from here on in with the rain around in the Test match in particular. One of the bowlers who looked really good for Australia was Tyler Vermink, who has since been ruled out of, the, of both the rest of the series and the World Cup that's coming up with a recurrence of a stress factor in her right foot. Uh, I thought when she was bowling, it just looks like a different game to when, to when England are bowling. Um, I saw this morning that Beth Mooney's going to look like she's going to play the test <laughs> yeah, match. Yeah. She having having broken her jaw in the nets <laughs> ten days ago. She's really? kind God. of patchwork up and she's going to play the test match. Just as if this this Aussie team couldn't get any tougher. It's a... Moving on, there was a pretty huge story that emerged this morning. It regards one of the biggest figures in Zimbabwe in cricket this century, Brendan Taylor. Taylor's played over 280 times for his country. He scored 17 international hundreds. Um, and this morning he released a statement outlining a fairly shocking sequence of events that has ultimately led to what he describes as a multi-year ban from international cricket that's about to come his way from the ICC. So Taylor claims that in October 2019, he was given 15,000 US dollars to attend a meeting in India that was supposedly concerning the launch of a new cricket competition in Zimbabwe. Uh, Long story short, after the meeting, he was offered cocaine, which he then took. The next morning, um, some men stormed into his hotel room and showed Taylor a video of him uh, taking the cocaine the night before and told him that if he did not spot fix international matches for them, the video would then be released to the public. Taylor says that he was then scared for his safety and, and the safety of his family uh, and that the whole ordeal had a significant effect on his mental and physical health. Four months on from the meeting, Taylor unprompted uh, reported what happened himself to the ICC. He claims that he never fixed anything uh, and on his impending ban, he says, I humbly accept this decision and only hope that my story will be used as a means of encouragement for cricketers to report any approaches early. Um, Joe, that's a, it's a really shocking story and shows that this remains a very real part of our game, whether we like it or not. Yeah, it's a, it's a stunning statement. I was really taken aback reading that this morning. I mean, it's a, it's a stunning story on a very personal level and my, my main feeling is overwhelming sympathy for the bloke obviously he's made a couple of poor decisions along the way there but imagine the agony he must have been living through um and you know the ICC have have rules and I suppose they have to stick to them but a multi-year ban feels perhaps a little bit harsh in the circumstances um we'll have to see how long the ban is but it's also a massive story about just what it means for cricket and we we sort of 
I think, try and convince ourselves that this is a problem that's been solved or is at least in in hand because, you know, you don't want to watch a game that you think isn't isn't as it seems. And it should be emphasised that Taylor is claiming he hasn't actually fixed any games here at all. It never got to that stage. But what the story has shown is, is really revealed the methods that are being used to, to, to kind of trap these players and trap vulnerable players. And Taylor goes on to talk in a statement about the fact that he has a drug problem and that he's going into rehab. So it seems a fair assumption, not 100% sure, but that they, they basically done their background research on a bloke who has a problem and they've targeted him for that specific reason, which is kind of quite a chilling thing to think about, really, that you've got these fixes going to those lengths, doing their research, trapping these players. Um, and also the fact that it only came out because Brendan Taylor seems to have gone to the ICC and reported it. And it reminded me of speaking, a chat I had with Ed Hawkins a few years ago, who wrote the book, Bookie Gambler Fix a Spy, which is well worth looking into if you're, if you're interested in this. Uh, and he said that the ICC anti-corruption unit, their heart is in the right place. It's all with the best intentions, but they don't have anywhere near the resources they need to be able to do this job effectively. And they are essentially completely reliant on whistleblowers. And that still to this day seems pretty much the case. I think they, there have been a few investigations that have, that have um, brought shed light on things, but we're still essentially relying on players to come forward. And that obviously begs the question, how much more of this is there out there? Um, Brendan Taylor is not the only cricketer out there with a vulnerability of a, of a drug problem or, or a gambling debt or whatever it might be that, that puts someone under huge pressure. Um, and we have another example here that there are people around to desperate to exploit that as much as they can and um it's quite it's quite a scary story really yeah taylor touches on like the underlying inequality that makes these stories so much more likely to happen he says that he wasn't paid for six months leading up to the offer to have that meeting and you think that these fixers probably have done their research and also what makes me think is like brendan is a really big name in in international cricket so you kind of wonder like Surely it's just not Brendan Taylor being targeted. There are going to be a lot of other players lower down the ladder who are going to be more susceptible to blackmail or bribery or anything like that. And also, it's worth clarifying, uh, this is one side of the story that's come out. We don't know the full picture yet. The, the, the ban is, is interesting. I think the, the, the length of the ban, the extent of the ban. And again, you're right, the story is only just coming out and we await the ICC's version of it. He has preempted that official statement that he knew was coming from the ICC. And it may paint a more complex picture in time. But if you take him at his word as it stands and you compare his, as he says, multi-year ban to, say, Shakib Al-Hassan's ban from two years ago, year mm. and a half ago. Yeah, that was When he was banned for one year, it was two years, but one year suspended. He was back within a year. Um, and that was failing to disclose various um, approaches that he'd been subject to uh, and meetings that he had had. Uh, that failure to disclose seems to me more grave than Taylor's delayed disclosure to the ICC. Yeah. And and he makes the point, Taylor, that time is absolutely of the essence and he understands, having sat through various anti-corruption seminars, that time is of the essence, of course. You know, if you're going to catch these culprits and so on, then you're going to need the information to be to be running fast, for sure. And so he holds his hands up on that. But that seems comparatively to be... A little bit skewed, Joe. Yeah, I think so. Look, it's tricky. We don't know all the details yet, yeah. but yeah, it's hard not to take Taylor's statement at face value because it is so honest and so candid. Um, so we'll ha we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, I suppose 
the ICC mate said, look, Taylor has actually got on a flight, gone to this place, met with these people. He acknowledges himself that it seems suspicious. So in that sense, there is action taken, which Shakib seemingly didn't. Um, and and they also, they need to come down, I understand the ICC need to come down hard on these players so that people do think twice about, about doing that. But that old idea that certainly in the Cronier days that people do this because they're greedy, I think we're, we're far beyond that now. It's, it's, it's clear that it's... Um, it's more than it's more than greed, and they're they're canny operators. These fixers, and they'll they'll target people. Um, as you say, the, the discrepancy between the the top and the bottom is just growing more and more in cricket, which makes it more and more um, an environment that's more likely to to suit the needs of the fixers, really. And obviously, on top of that, you've got t t twenty t ten leagues all around the world, which are are ripe for this stuff. Mm, I've not really thought about it before, but hearing you say that the IC's anti-corruption unit is so reliant on whistleblowers. The idea that a whistleblower gets a multi-year ban for not taking action so early surely deters more whistleblowers. So much is going on through their head and suddenly if they miss that moment early on, they're like, well, what, what's really in this for me, to be honest, especially yeah. to Taylor towards the end of his career as well. Yeah, it's a very good point. Um, the, the bind that the ICC are in, they're headed up by a bloke called Alex Marshall, who's a former policeman um, and he's the head of integrity I think is the term general manager of integrity at the ICC and I've interviewed him before and he was he's very bullish about the job that they've got to do but also the scale of the job that they have to do because they have to reverse uh, a culture that had collectively turned a blind eye to this stuff um, in cricket Um, and so a zero tolerance policy seemed to be the only logical response to um, you know and and an uncovered, uh, grim reality that permeated cricket at all kinds of levels, certainly through the 90s, parts of the 90s, turn of the de- turn of the century as well. And they were, and he told me this, you know, he said, I could tell you stories that would chill your bones. And, uh, and so how do they approach that from a policing perspective now? Um, I understand why the zero tolerance policy, why it may deter certain individuals. Um, the... The uh, the guidelines are there now. You know the strictures are there now. If you delay, if you if you have information, and you delay uh, presenting that information to us, then we're going to come down hard on you. And I can understand that there needs to be that kind of sternness now. That they it's 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 the blight on the game. Of course, everybody knows that. Um, they have at least the ICC in recent years bared their teeth a little bit. There was the Salas Jayasuriya story, who was a big beast, an icon of the game. Al Hassan as well, again, icon of the game. So they've been accused. I remember Nasser Hussein saying this. They've been accused of going after the minnows in the past. Um, well, uh, they are at least now beginning to indicate that that no name is too big. Uh, but yeah, look, as Joe says, this story continues to eat its way into the soul of the game. But and the, the solution of the problem is, I mean, like the, it's hard to see there being a proper solution until there is just like a more equitable economy that provides for everyone who plays cricket internationally and professionally rather than the, I mean because because as you say it's not it's not greed as such if if Brendan Taylor is wanting to just essentially provide for his family basically and not been paid in six months that is entirely different to him like seeking out a big pay packet uh and 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 basically you have a situation where there is so much money in gambling on cricket and that is often more than the players who are actually playing the games that are being bet on are being paid themselves. I mean, I'm 
I'm actually shocked that until now we haven't had a huge women's cricket fixing scandal because that's especially where you get the ability to bet on these top level games and where critters are often like even semi-professional at times uh, and until you get to a stage where cricketers are being basically fairly reimbursed for the revenue that the games they're playing and are generating then this kind of thing is, is just not going to go away because there is there just will be an opportunity to exploit there and there will be people willing to exploit it I think. Back to the England men's side um, just after we recorded last week's pod a video emerged of Nathan Lyon Joe Root James Anderson Alex Carey and Travis Head being asked to leave a hotel bar by police at 6am after the Hobart test the video was reportedly filmed by Graham Thorpe um, one of the England assistant coaches out there in Australia and it's fair to say that the ECB aren't particularly thrilled with that video you wouldn't be would you yeah allegedly filmed by a member of the England coaching staff landed in the Australian papers a couple of days later. I don't think there's a huge amount to add there. That was just the perfect finish to the perfect tour, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now to the fun stuff. Uh, The four of us have all picked squads for England's upcoming tour to the Caribbean. Um, We're not really going to debate what England are likely to do. We are picking the squads that we would pick if we were in charge of the England selection process. Um, So... Let's start. We need we need a captain for this tour. So do we all have to get to a point of agreement? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to have... And you have the final say if we can't decide. Is that the... Uh, I'll, I'll do it more on what the consensus of the room is rather than making my own decision. Okay. Uh, um, Thanks the discussion. Here's the squad I want. Yeah, <laughs> so you're going the Silverwood route rather than the Ed Smith route. I'm not the chairman of selectors. Um, well, I nominated one. you last night as chairman of selectors. I'm the one who's putting the list of names down at the end. So I guess I don't know how it actually works. So um, okay. don't wanna, don't wanna give anyone job titles at the moment. Um, we're going to have a 17 or 18 man squad, probably 18, um, just so there's enough cover for positions. Ben Ben is a firm believer that you need to have you need to build squads properly and have cover for every position. So and it's worth pointing out that probably COVID allows yeah. for that 18th member if we if we go down that road yeah. normally it would be 16 17 certainly for a three test series yeah absolutely um so uh joe who's, who's captaining for us uh joe Root if he wants it uh and Stuart broad if he doesn't and i think everyone agrees right yeah i mean i've I've done i've gone round and round with, with with it but yeah i think i think that the paucity of other options makes it i can't argue against it um, yeah and I've I've received all kinds of grief from friends privately, you know, who who are able to just just call it as they see it and all of that. Quite tasty on your WhatsApps, isn't it? It yeah. has, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my my one of my finest and dearest friends has has gone off the top board on this one and and disrespects everything that I say on life, love, and the universe because I've I've maintained that, that I think Root is probably still the best the best option in the absence of anybody else uh but i can understand the arguments against it i can understand the sense that this is it that you know the the cycle has come to an end but not for me would you see it though how much of root being captain now is is kind of he's almost like he's gone from being permanent to almost being stopgap and if a candidate emerges then you'd be willing to push them up quite quickly say say someone comes in and looks impressive within like say 10 test time They've got maybe a couple hundreds. I know speaking, being very, very optimistic here, but there's a, there's a, there's a guy who kind of looks that part. Would, would you is is Joe Root's time up, barring there being another candidate, or do you think this is kind of the starting of a new cycle under it's, Joe Root? It's a good question. It's hard to say though because historically England captains tend to resign exhausted and knackered and done in, and they've got no 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 more road left to run. I don't think Root's there. Or he might be now. He might have gone home and reflected and spoken to his wife and so on and decided, mm, 
sod this for a game of soldiers. But I don't think he's there yet. And I think it's an immense mitigation to, to make the point that he can't bat for everybody else. And if, you're, if you can't go north of, north of 150, then a combination of Benno, Brearley, Jardine and all the rest couldn't, couldn't kind of turn around a series if, if you can't bat. Now, okay, sure, there are selections that were lamentable and decisions that were regrettable, for sure. No question about that. And he is, he is no great strategist or tactician. But you'd have seen a lot more flair from him as a captain and you'd have seen a lot more things working his way if he wasn't constantly working against the scoreboard. And I think that has to be considered, right? We would, and we were definitely talking about Root coming into his own as a captain in that series in Sri Lanka and, you know, he's being a bit cannier with his bowling choice and stuff. And that's because they were winning. And that, that's what it comes down to. And I'm not saying he is a great captain at all, but I think it's so much of it is down to what you've got in front of you. And so who else is going to want a job? And on Ben's point, I don't. it's hard to see even any kind of medium-term prospects at the moment. I mean, maybe if Stokes suddenly got back to sort of 2019 levels, you'd think, well, it, just everything's going right. Why don't you just give him the job possibly? But He's made well, it quite clear he's not interested, Stokes. I don't think that's just being loyal to Root. Do you not? I, no, I don't. I think it's consistent with what you said over the last 10 years. And also, I think when you consider what he's personally gone through with his injury, with his time off to, to get his head right, as he said himself... And the fact that he is a multi-format player uh, who can be pulled, pushed and pulled all over the place. Um, there's an element of loyalty to Root, but I don't think he is kind of waiting for his time and then going to be dutifully taking it. I genuinely think he's going to think, no, I don't, want, I don't need or want that job. Yeah. Um, so England can't score many runs. We've we've kind of established that. It's been quite a downbeat show. This is just going to take it through the floor. <laughs> Let's no, no, do it. No, we've got some new names no, who are yeah, going to save England's exactly, test cricket. Exactly. Oh, right. Okay. Um, Ben, who who are the openers that you're taking to the West Indies? Well, so just to to, to to sort of kick off, I think that especially compared to what I've heard about Phil's squad, is we have quite different philosophies. As we kind of discussed on the show a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, that I just think it is of paramount importance that England pick the squad that they think is most likely to win this series in the West Indies. Uh, which means I haven't actually, I've not changed a huge amount. I've, I've sort of tweaked a bit here and there, but I do think they by and large had like the best group of players from county cricket available on that tour. So to, my openers uh, are... Uh, Did he just gaslight me? Is that is that the, is that the, what the term is? No, uh, I, I picked a squad to try and win some cricket. Okay, matches. okay, fine. But last week you were saying oh, that, you, in it. You, last week you were saying you'd be happy enough to, to pick the kids and have some fun with it. No, basically. again, that's just classic media um, reductivity. <laughs> it's nonsense. Okay, well, this you, is going did well. You, did you see? Um, did you see Butch on BT Sport basically criticising your idea for picking the kids? What, me um, personally? Did he actually name he didn't, me? He didn't name you, but he said, I've, I've heard Just some... what you stand he, he said, I've heard, I've heard some people say that English should go out there with, with some kids. It's like, oh, I wonder, wonder where I've heard that one before. If we go back through it, what I actually said was basically, um, you know, Butler needs to be taken out of the yeah. firing line. And, and I, I didn't fancy Bairstow at the time. I still don't really, but his 100 means that he probably does get in the squad. Mm. Um, aside from that, that was essentially all I'd said. But anyway, <laughs> you know. Anyway, Ben, my, openers, my, my openers give me openers. Are, so my starting openers would be... Zach Crawley and uh, Alex Lees and I would go for and this is what this is the one slash I've allowed myself is Rory Burns and Dom Sibley because I think from our position we just can't know where each of them are at in their technical overhauls if Sibley has had a winter at the in the edge Baston nets and is sort of back trusting his defence trusting his leave I think that there was a, a very promising test opener there for, for a reason amount of time and he shouldn't be discarded uh, equally if Burns has had had you know we, we've seen him turn around poor bits of form and 
poor kind of technical periods quite quickly as he did before the 2019 Ashes. Um, if he has done that and he can convince England of that, then I would be fine with him getting another go. And I think that those have been the two standout openers in category over a long period of time. So I wouldn't like to see either of them discarded. But yeah, that's who I would go for. And Lee's is, I mean, Yaz did a good interview with him on wisdom.com that went up in the past uh, week. And he, he sounds like he's a guy who thinks a lot about his game, has been through a fair amount. He had a really good start at Yorkshire and was sort of getting praise from Boycott and all the rest as a future England opener. Uh, and then had a really tricky two years, which he says is down to basically disagreeing, not getting on with the management there, which I thought was interesting and has since gone to Durham, knowing that he, th- he thought if he could score runs up there, they would almost count Dublin away and has averaged about 40 since moving to Durham, which is pretty impressive. Uh, and he's kind of, it's almost in the Burns mould of not having had one properly standout season yet, but having had qu- quite a lot of seasons of pretty consistent run scoring. Uh, so there's quite a lot to like there, even if it's not like the... I mean, there isn't a hugely exciting opener out there that England just aren't picking because otherwise they would have picked him by now. So that's who I'd go for. Yeah, I, I, I've got Lees in my squad as well. Um, I think basically opening in Test cricket is is so hard and we're looking at the numbers recently. Uh, it's Openers are averaging the, the lowest they have done since the 1900, so literally between 1900 and 1909. is really, really difficult. And I think if England are going to go for someone new, I'd rather it be someone who's a bit more confident in their game, um, who's got more cricket under their belt, rather than asking another youngster to kind of learn on the job. So I've gone Leeds as my uh, new opener. You have Leeds as well, don't you, Joe? Yeah. Yeah, so I've got Leeds and Brace, Bracey. Uh, so either, sorry, Leeds or Bracey to open with Crawley. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not quite sure on Leeds or Bracey. I think I would maybe lean towards Bracey. I think, we, I think he was too... It's too easy to discard him based on what happened in that New Zealand series, batting a seven, keeping wicket. That shouldn't really be part of the conversation, mm. I don't think. And up until that point, he was he was the up-and-coming county top-order batter who deserved a chance. So I'd probably still yeah. have him just in front of Lees. Yeah. Uh, but, ideally, you'd have some actual warm-up cricket beforehand and make a judgment based on that. But I don't I don't know what they've got in the lead-up to the, Is it just inter-squad stuff? Yeah. I do think he was harshly discarded after two test matches performing a role that he doesn't really perform. But I also think he was too hastily promoted as the next man in. He hadn't had like one really good season at Gloucestershire before 2021. And even that was just like pretty good rather than outstanding. Like he was picked in those England Lions squads off like really not that much. But did well in those scenarios against the proper England attack in one of those mm, inter-squad games. And he got 100 for the Lions out against Australia. Right? And if we're talking about bridging that gap between county cricket and and test cricket mm. he seems to have done that in a way that you know Alex Lee hasn't had so much of a chance but he failed twice against Australia A um if we're coming up from almost that, that county cricket isn't a great indicator of who should get promoted then Bracey has sort of shown enough outside of county cricket to suggest that he's worth a proper mm. shot I think yeah cool. I was pretty close to Bracey well the only thing is is that Bracey is more of a number three Right, whereas Lees is a proper opener who's done that his whole career. And I think that there, I mean, often with England, there's not a huge amount of difference, but I think there is uh, enough of a difference that, like, that, that's, I think. Bracey's opened quite a bit for Gloucester, hasn't he? He's interchanged between opening and. and yeah, but I'm right thinking his really good form at the start of last season came at number three. I think he got 100 up top, didn't it? When I was picking my squad, I did look, okay. did he open enough? I can't remember what, if he got runs as an opener, to be honest, but he, he did. It was kind of mixing and matching a bit. Mm. Uh, Phil, who are your openers? Well, if we can have if we can have an extra player, then um, I put Sibley down as my 18th player, um, and I can understand that. I don't hate that idea. Uh, um, you know, he's made 100 against West Indies as well. He's made an overseas 100 in South Africa. He's clearly 
he has his limitations and his quirks. Um, but I can understand where Ben is coming from on that, and I wouldn't have any issue with him being being considered. Crawley, for me, um, should be England's opening bat for the next five to ten games, see how he goes. I know he, there's an also a big case to make him a number three, but, but I liked the tempo with the way that in which he batted in Australia. Not just the 77, but he made a good 36 in the final test match. Um, could have kicked on there, but he, I like his, I like the rhythm of his game as an opening batsman. Um, and the, the, the bolter is Tom Haynes at Sussex, who's young, but this is, this is the, 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 the philosophical question that we're all, all asking, and it's a totally fair one. And it might be more sensible overall to look at a player who's gone gone the journey on their own career such as a Alex Lees or a Sam Robson or somebody like that I could totally get that that might be the smartest move but then the counter argument to that is identify the players with the best techniques um, the most solid techniques and then allow them to develop and grow in in, in a test match level um, and Tom Haynes if you speak to the coaches around the game then he's a hugely respected young player and he and he has he has big runs as a as a young lad coming into the, the professional game he's the first person to to break thousand runs last year opening the batting in England or okay that you know he played against some slightly lesser teams here and there but he also made good runs against some good teams as well um and it feels premature but it also feels um why not why not and so I would bring him in as one of three options um See how they see how they face up as well. Uh, I would I would let Hasib, you know, just try and gather his thoughts. I would take Burns out the firing line for for now. Um, and so, have you not got Lee's or Bracey, or you got? So I have Sibley, Crawley, and Haynes as my three okay. options. I think on on the youth policy, it's obviously something we've discussed a fair amount. But England have kind of pursued a youth policy for a reasonable amount of time in terms of the age of players that they've picked, and it it hasn't worked basically like they've they've hoped that they can identify good players and have them work out for themselves at test cricket and but, then, but is the, is the the problem the policy or the personnel well as in the coaching personnel and um, the the personnel that are actually selected uh no i don't i don't is I think, it their age is it is it the is it the idea the theory is fundamentally wrong or is it that the, the personnel have not been not been deemed to be good enough? In the no, end? I personally, the, the, the main issue actually would have been the, the lack of coaching and guidance those players have probably received when they've got to that top level that you have players who like. It's fine if you have a guy who's played first class cricket for 10 years and then you tell him to go and play the way he's played his whole career in test cricket because you're, you might not change a guy hugely then. But if you have a guy who you're picking because you think he's pretty promising and you're basically just like throwing him to the lines without a huge amount of coaching, which is what it seemed has kind of happen and been allowed to happen within the England environment so I think the conversation is quite different sure, if you have a different coaching sure. team in place that West Indies tour which I guess we don't know at this stage but at the moment I mean you have a set of coaches who haven't seemed too willing to sort of take a player and mold them to test cricket you're just you are just picking players who you think have a tiny bit about them and just saying go on you you 20 year old go and like face Shannon Gabriel and see how you get on and that is like that's I, I wouldn't be comfortable with Tom Haynes opening a test match uh right now basically because of that if there was a different coach team in place, possibly. I still think it's slightly early for him. It's been has just been one good season, I think, which is mm. mm-hmm. yeah. So um, if, you, if we were doing it on uh the number of times each player's picked, so Crawley's a shoo-in, everyone's picked him. Uh Alex Lee's is a weird one because three of us have picked him, but two have picked him as a reserve. So I don't know if that changes things a little bit. Get him in as a reserve. Um then. Okay. 
Okay, so so Crawley, Lees, and one more. Um, who, who was in yours? Yes. Uh, for me, it was I. I had Crawley batting three personally, so I picked three openers who were different. So I had one Burns, of whom is Sibley, Sibley, right? Yeah, Sibley, Burns, and Lees. So three um, of us have Sibley. I'd lean yeah. Sibley over Burns as well. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like Sibley, Lees, Crawley. Is it? Yeah. Sibley, Lees, Crawley up top. Um, well, any any of you guys were were you um, tempted to have Crawley in at three? You were, Joe. I was tempted. I really am denied about Milan here and I'm still not. He's in my squad, but I'm not wholly comfortable with that decision. Uh, he obviously started the Ashes really well and tailed off sort of quite dramatically by the end. And you know, it was not exactly a, an environment that was fostering success at that point. So I think you can give some mitigation there. And obviously for the final test match, I mean, he had the, the early birth of his child. That's that's obviously going to distract you a bit. So I'd, I'd definitely give him a... Um, yeah, that's the thing that was understandable right at the end there. I think I think he's been treated not great in the past, and I just feel like he deserves another crack at it. Basically, I think he's shown just enough to think. You know, it's partly going on what Ben said. Really, just throwing in more kids. I don't think at this stage is 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 really the way to go. Even though it might be tempting, I think there needs to be as much solidity as there possibly can be, given the chaos that surrounds the whole thing. So for me, he w- he would get this tour at three, and then you make a call given his age once and for all at the end of that tour are we going to stick with him over the summer as our number three or are we going to say thanks very much you carry on playing the t20 stuff but your, your test career is done i think the other thing with milan as well is that he was one of the few and i think apart from best the one of the batting side to start the tour in the t20 world cup and then finish it in the ashes which would also yeah, have a big impact and point. because yeah. of his wife being uh, pregnant as well he what he couldn't have his family with him over Christmas or over the tour at all. So I think there is a reasonable amount of mitigation there and you can see that through the scores. Uh, but again, I guess it you, you guess you don't know how he is now. And, and, and if you were to say like, look, I've just, my wife's just given birth. I would kind of like to have this one off. Uh, but I guess, I mean, I guess he, he will know as well that if, if, he, if he asks for it off or if they were to suggest he takes it off, that is probably the end of his test career. So it's a huge tricky situation for him as well. But yeah, it's, uh... yeah. I think Milan's in. I was the only person not to pick him because I'd call it three. Uh, kind of looked at Milan. You didn't have him in your squad. No, uh, I'd call it call it three. And uh, yeah, basically, I think he's 34, 22 Test matches, averaging twenty seven. I think he's done fine considering England had no obvious candidate to bat three when they needed a three last summer, and he'd, he's done okay. Um, is he even a stopgap? I'm not not really sure. Um, I, I think also with Crawley, I'm, I'm just still not that convinced that he's a long-term opener. Um, I, I, I still basically think he's just a really good white ball player who will have good days out every now and again. Um, nothing's really changed my mind. He could still be, it's, but him scoring a really good 70 off like only 90-odd balls doesn't make me think yet that he's opener for five years or anything like that. So I'd, I'd like to see Crawley come in slightly later if possible. Uh, but Milan, Milan was picked in through the four squads, so he's in. Roots in all of them, Stokes in all of them, um, and somebody else is in all of the squads. But I think he is worth talking about a little bit because we haven't actually talked to him, talked about him that much recently. Is Dan Lawrence? Um, he's not in my squad. Is he not? Well, he's not. Okay. Why, why have you not picked him? That's interesting. I've not picked him because um, I, <laughs> I want him to be shown a bit more respect, and he's he's walked around Australia for two and a half months. And it must be incredibly miserable to see a team unable to score more than 150 and not to be selected in any of those squads. Um, speaking to people around the 
the press box in Australia. I don't think he was especially close to being picked either. Um, I wouldn't want to put the kid through more of that, any kid through more of that. And if he were to be in, be on this tour, then he would still be the the, the reserve reserve batsman probably. Um, I would rather he just goes back to, to, to Essex and just enjoys the camaraderie and the buzz of a, of a pre-season and goes, goes, goes and bats for Essex at four and makes four hundreds by the time of the first, the first test match at home. And then he can become a legitimate part of the conversation again. If England were going to take him and genuinely consider playing him at five or six, then I'd say it's a different story and he would be in my squad, but I just don't think that they're going to at the moment. And I think it's been quite a, a sort of a sullied period. And I feel a bit sorry for him because as Joe wrote, a couple of weeks ago, he's made four ducks, but also he's played four significant innings in a very short space of time. No one really knows what he stands for, uh, but he's been he's he's been in a bib. He's been in a fluorescent bib for three months. Mm. I wouldn't put him in another one. So you think it's different now that Besto scored that hundred? That hundred changed because I, I I wrote my squad for the magazine prior to the uh, Sydney test and then basically had to change it. I wasn't going to take best though. I thought that was all kind of coming to an end. And I said, Lawrence has got about six and he deserves a long shot, uh, long run in the side or reasonably long, as long as you can afford to find out whether he can do it or not. Um, but, you know, when England can't score hundreds and best gets one, you, you've got to pick him really. Um, I wouldn't go as far as Phil to say, don't take him. I just think there's so much uncertainty. There's, there's COVID around, it could be an injury in the nets. It's, it's three tests, right? They're playing. I still think there's a reasonably decent chance that Lawrence would get a game. So I, I would take him out there, even though he is probably the, the next batsman in. Um, just because, you know, you don't know how these things might turn out and it could be it could be the, the making of him. Um, and I'm not sure demoting him further is necessarily going to help at this point. But So, so it's quite interesting. It looks like we're going to have a pretty similar top six to <laughs> yeah. what, what England had in the Ashes. Roll on, yeah. yeah. It, so it, we're going to have a three, four, well, sorry, yeah, three, four, five, six of Milan, Root, Stokes and, and Bairstow, which is exactly what it was in the Ashes. The only thing is, in my squad, I had a, or my, my imagined team was Lawrence batting at six with Bairstow keeping. I had that as well. Um, okay. b- because, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, 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 the argument against is that Bairstow's finally, you know, looked like he can do test cricket again and then all of a sudden you're changing his role, which is what people say you shouldn't be doing to the you know, through this whole time. But I think there is uh, an argument that he was as at his best as a wiki batter for a reason. And I think at the time when he was promoted to, well, promoted number five with the gloves originally, and then England tried to make him a specialist bat, there was an argument to that in that he had been England's second best batter after Root for a significant amount of time and that you want to, him to be making match-defining scores rather than coming in and sort of making contributions from number seven. But I think with that kind of experiment having gone on for quite a long time and not hugely worked essentially, you can sort of think that maybe he is just like a player who is capable of being a, a world-class even test wiki batter but isn't capable of the like even the slight added technical requirements of batting at like number five or number six which is what you want you really do want your number six to be able to get up there at some point and I think that that is not something that still we have quite even best as brilliant as is uh as that 100 was and I think if you can just have him back down at number seven which is going to be more in tune with what he does in the in the white ball game and can come out and have a bit more license uh, and a bit more license to fail as well where there's the less of the constant requirement score runs then i think that is what will suit him and england best and then you are you do still have the number six lot where you can groove someone a little bit and i think lawrence uh 
I guess the tough thing is, again, England, only England will know how he is after three months away and that sort of thing. And they might have seen stuff they didn't like and whatever and that sort of thing. But like he should have earned that chance after Pope having, you know, performed equivalently to Pope, maybe even best to Pope over the past 12 months or so. Uh, I think that Lawrence deserved a shot basically at number six, um, as long as there's nothing going on that we don't know about, essentially. So did anyone pick Pope? Uh, I don't think so. No, it looks like time to take him out the firing line, I think. Yeah. Joe Keeper, based on what Ben's saying. Yeah, it's interesting. I Made a good case, didn't he? Yeah, it did make a case. I, I had I had folks keeping wicket um, with Besto as my sort of reserve keeper, but batting six. Um, but there is certainly, if you're thinking runs are the problem, you think a combination of Lawrence and Besto are going to score more runs than a combination of either folks and Lawrence or folks and Besto. Um you lose a bit on the wicket keeping, which I know will upset a lot of people. But you know, I know Butler made a few clangs in Australia, but it, it wasn't the wicket keeping that cost England the Ashes. It yeah. was uh, very much the batting. So I, I think there's some logic in that. I can see that. I think I would probably. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm taking them all anyway. So I can, can I make a I can make a call on the eleven when I get out to yeah, the Caribbean. Right? That, that's fine. Um, but I, so we, I think we're, we're all taking folks as well. There, there's there is room for one other batter. I think. Uh, at the moment, we've got Milan, Root, Stokes, Bairstow possibly being a keeper, Lawrence. Um, I think there's room for one more batter. If we're having an 18-man squad, I think it's fine to have one more. So, yeah, um, I, I picked Josh Bohannon from Lancashire. Who, who, he just feels like the sort of player that should be getting picked, really. A player who is more or less a Red Bull specialist. Um, played around the game, say his, his technique is, and temperament, most, perhaps most crucially, is, is just is well set for Test cricket. Um, his numbers back that up. Um, he plays on his games are on a good pitch, Old Trafford. Which, if you're talking about again bridging that gap between Test cricket and county cricket, then old performances at Old Trafford is probably quite a good indicator for that. Uh, and he got a few runs for the Lions uh, against Australia. Ray, uh, I mean, this is an 18-man squad. He's unlikely to get a game, but I think if he's the sort of person that England have identified as someone who, in the next 12 to 18 months, might get a go then having him part of the group, feeling comfortable in that environment is is no bad thing at all. Mm. Phil? Well, there's a lot of logic in having a look at the player without the expectation that he'll be he'll be in that first test. Um so I can I get I can get with that. Um with Bahannon, he's a player who's made a lot from what he's got rather than the other way around, which might be exactly what England need. The counter argument to that is that he might have a ceiling of talent that, um, you know, will come crashing down on him when he plays at international level. But I can totally see Joe's logic there. I'd be comfortable with that. I mean, my my flyer was obviously Vince um, for all the reasons that I've said a thousand times. Do I have to go through it again? Probably no, not. you don't. No, you don't. Probably not. Um, the, the, the the stat that I keep coming back to with Vince is I find it mad he's never batted six for England in Test cricket. Because yeah, you, you, look, you look at him and you think he's a five or six yeah. kind of game-changing player, uh, you know, against a ball that is 50, 50 overs old. Mm, or so 22 on. overs old. Or, yeah. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> six overs old. Uh, ben, what about you? Yeah, I can see the logic behind both of those. Jo- Josh Bohannon, he has the outstanding first-class record in England of a player who hasn't yet been tried in Test cricket. So I think that it, 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 just a, there's a slightly limited sample size, but it's it's growing, obviously. Uh, I went for Tom Abel, who has a uh, a first-class record that doesn't leap off the page. So he averages, what, 33, 34 for, for Somerset. Um, but there is a lot that 
goes into making up that number. He had his first few seasons, which he was balancing alongside his studies. And we've seen with someone like Kieran Carlson the past year, that actually that can have a reasonably big impact on how much you can focus on your cricket over the winter, just the, the, the things you're juggling. They can have, they can, they, that can change things. And then pretty soon after he graduated and became a first choice member of, or like a full-time member of that team, he was made captain, which I don't know if they say it was a mistake in hindsight, but it didn't agree with him. Basically his form basically dropped off a cliff. He uh, He's spoken about sort of a, like being in tears in the team bus on his way to games, wrestling with the decision to drop himself, which he eventually did. And he's come back from that quite a lot stronger, basically. He's also not a player who's made lots of big hundreds, but he has he has a knack of like sort of making the, the right contribution at the right time for Somerset, which on that pitch down at Taunton and on some of the pitches you get in County Cricket in general is something that has been very valuable for him there, but I think can be a valuable trait when taken up to the top level and that he's had to work out a variety of different situations. He's had to sort of uh, craft his techniques, lots of situations. And he is, he is a player that is good to watch bat as well. Like I do like watching him sort of compile in innings and get grips with the challenge of what's facing him and then uh, and then kind of figure it out. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, I like Tom Abel as, as a player and, and as an option, but he is also a, what a 27 year old who averages 33 34 so i can imagine england fans sort of <laughs> looking at that and being like what's going on here who's your, who's yours uh i'd joe clark um, right i was gonna wonder uh, because kind of what ben was saying earlier about what you want from a number six being someone who you could potentially see batting higher up years down the line he had a really frustrating season last season where he averaged high 30s kept on getting out between like 50 and 65 only 100 but in terms of players who i think could become long-term test players I don't think there are many in the country better than Clark he's got a lot of first class hundreds for someone his age and I completely get your point on on Abel but I just don't think England can pick can keep picking guys who play on these spicy wicket wickets and just there are good signs there but that's just so far of what batting in test cricket is like there's just not enough there for me to be like oh he's a test cricketer yet um, that's an interesting point though because then are we essentially discarding a bunch of players because they play on certain wickets for certain counties. Oh, wickets definitely as bad as sometimes been made out. Because um, I guess you've got probably got... probably like obviously Taunton probably is Kent probably probably is, but I, th- I think yeah, I think yeah, it is just so different to Test cricket. I mean, you end up being in a position, and don't get me wrong, and I'm going back to Crawley again. Crawley could be a brilliant Test cricketer, but he is 20 Test matches in his career, and he averages 27. That he's that's not good enough, um, and. Yeah, I'm sure that there are green shoots there, but we're we're very kind to someone. After 20 test matches and you're averaging 27, you should be like, is this guy really good enough? For England? Ben, ben wanted to drop after he scored a double century. Yeah, so. oh, before, before. <laughs> before as well, and um, so yeah, I kind of, and I know with Clark, he hasn't scored the massive hundreds in recent years, but he has, he's only 25 and he has shown that he can score the big hundreds. Um, Trent Bridge is one of the harder places to bat in the country. He's got a pretty good record there as well. Better than the like, like, like Abel at Somerset or Crawley at um I was, I was close with Clark yeah for me it was between Clark and Vince and I yeah. think Clark I, I I think there's slightly more there I mean over- he's, he's probably the most talented player in English talented batter in English mm. cricket not to have received a cap at any level I'd much rather have a, a first look at Joe Clark than another look at James Vince yeah. at this stage are we going Clark then because we didn't have all the other guys we picked the uncapped guys were, were different names um, of the names reckon? that you mentioned mm-hmm. that I didn't pick then, yeah. Clark would be top for me. There, there is there is logic to Clark. There is romance to Vince. Ben, 
Well, I, I would actually lean out of all those names if it wasn't Abel would be Josh Bohannon personally. Which really? Was, yeah, throw something into, into it. But yeah. Um, yeah, that is interesting. I guess. I guess if, it, if we're looking for talent, untapped talent, is Clark a more intriguing pick than Bohannon? I think. Oh, I think he has spent. I mean, he's also spent the last few weeks smacking it around in the big bash. I, 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 I know. What, is <laughs> there you go. Or, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> no I, idea. I, but yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, I don't know. Yeah, what, what I would say is uh, with Bahannon, if he makes our squad, he's not. He's probably not playing the first Test match, right? And I think we'll know a lot more about Bahannon after the first stint of another season. He's had one good season, one very good season, and a few like good mini seasons. Uh, how he does over the first six, seven weeks of this of the twenty twenty two summer, I think will go quite a long way to knowing where he is in England players. I mean, if he has, if he's averaging forty five. Uh, after seven games this season, he's probably batting three for England in the first Test match of the summer. Um, but I think his career is kind of that. I'm, wi- I'm willing point. to give up Bahannon for for Joe Clark in the spirit cool. of compromise. Cool, and also yeah, yeah, cool. Mo- moving on, we've got folks uh, and Bairstow with the gloves. Um, quicks are broadly the same as most of the guys who went to Australia. A couple of new names. Um, Phil, you went for Sam, Sam Cook. Cook and Sakim Mood. Yeah, Sam Cook. Is a is a hobby horse of mine, but I've seen him a lot. I think he's brilliant. I know he, he he's he's not got real pace, which is obviously the big issue um, against him as an international bowler. But what he does have is unbelievable, relentless accuracy and skill. Uh, and his record, his average, is better than all of the really interesting medium fast bowlers in English cricket, from Ollie Robinson to Overton and upwards. His record is the best of them all. He's won some pots as well with Essex. Uh, he just doesn't bowl bad balls. He's um, a real a real talent, but he's not a talent that jumps off the page. Or rather, he's not a talent that, that, that jumps off the pitch uh, when you watch him. But Test cricket is based around control. Um, and he would offer England that. Whether he would offer enough incision is, a, is the other question. But I think for him to... To, to not at least be looked at at some point, I think that would be a mistake. Um, it was interesting that he didn't make the Lions squad initially and then they called him up. He, so he's known to them. Uh, if he doesn't play international cricket next summer, then he'll take 75 championship wickets. And I'll tell you that now. His stamina is excellent as well. And this has become a more interesting question as well, watching how England's bowlers have struggled a little and obviously the Ollie Robinson thing has, has been drawn into focus, this question. He bowls all day long, and I've seen him do this. He's, he's, a, he's a good athlete. He's a natural athlete. Um, do you think uh, in terms of if he does get a chance, is this the best place for it to happen, though, in the Caribbean? Where, I mean, we just had Butch saying to Yaz, you know, height is, is so important in, in your bowlers there. Well, well he's, he's, he's got a bit. Um, he's not a, a like 5'11", kiss-the-surface kind of bowler. He's not that kind of bowler from what I've seen. Um he doesn't bowl heavy balls as, as such, but uh, he bowls irritating lengths. Uh, it might not be the right place for him, but again, in the spirit of trying to have a look at these individuals, I mean, how much will say will Joe Root know Sam Cook? How much will Joe Root know Joe Clark? They're, they're all ships passing in the night with cricket as fractured as it is now. So I don't have any issue with... And that's how Ollie Robinson's sort of status got elevated yeah. from suddenly being in the nets of those guys rather than just being Ollie Robinson who plays for Sussex and takes 60 wickets a season. Yeah, it's just a good yeah. point. And um, just, very, just very briefly on Mahmood, as you asked, I think reverse swing in West Indies is always useful. Uh, a bit of pace through the air. I think he might 
he might he would feature in a test match if he if he were out there and as we've seen you know pace through the air has been problematic for England for a while now and he he does have a bit of pace he doesn't have express pace to be honest but he has a bit uh and yeah I think it's he will he will feature in a Red Bull squad before too long why not this one yeah I, I was the only person not to pick the mood actually um, I kept the pace ball is exactly the same as went to Australia. Um, I kept Craig Overton because England got a problem with people who can bat eight. And also I think Overton at home is going to be quite important over the next few years. And I think Overton should probably play quite a lot of test matches at home. I know that's a very boring selection. Uh, I don't think he will play in West Indies, but if I was looking for a reserve player, I just kind of like the bowler did fine in Australia. Keep the same. Um, but Overton is still only like, He'd need two people to be out to play at home, wouldn't he, at the moment? Unless England are playing four quicks, I suppose. And But even then, he'd need one person to be out. So he's still... He's going to play what one or two tests a summer, isn't he? Uh, well, I mean, Anderson and Broad aren't young. That's so true, it, that's and, true. Yeah. And I think he has overtaken Sam Curran. And Sam Curran has played a fair few test matches over the last few years at home. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. who did you drop to make room for your two... So I, I didn't take Chris Wokes. Okay. Um, and I didn't take Craig Overton. Okay, yeah. Um, the the thing for me with Sam Cook, and I guess it's it's just hard to know this because I don't I can't remember having seen him on a game with a speed camera, uh, but there is sort of like a bit of a gap often between how players in county cricket are perceived and actually how quick they are. I think it was interesting seeing we said on the show a couple weeks ago, but seeing Craig Overton compared to Scott Boland in this context, where Craig Overton was the guy they said this is the best bar in county cricket. He's like he's he's pretty quick. He's or he's he's quick enough, and he he, he and that was the, so people say roughly the same things about Boland and Craig Overton. Boland is like five miles an hour quicker on average, maybe a bit more. Uh, and then you to get guys like Martin Anderson, who plays Middlesex, and people who watch Middlesex a lot will say this guy's pretty sharp. And you actually watch him when they have a game with the speed gun, and he's bowling 78, 79 miles an hour. And then you get guys like Ethan Bamber, who are sort of like, why could he not be England's Muhammad Abbas? Say. And actually, he's bowling like 71, 72 miles an hour, whereas Abbas is actually high 70s, like touching 80 at times. If Sam Cook is the same pace or even a touch slower than Mohamed Abbas, I would be kind of fine with having a look at him. But if he is actually mid 70s to low 70s, then that would be like a concern. He's not as slow as that. But, but, but that's the thing, like, like if it depends, because you assume that no one in county cricket is, is quite that slow, but actually there is like a decent chunk of them that are, I think. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. But then he played a couple of games in the 100 as well, and his, and his, his numbers were okay. Okay. You know, they're around the 80 mark. Okay, well, the, yeah, um, there's a decent it, argument, it, yeah. Yeah, Ollie Robinson has taken test wickets in various different conditions, um, bowling around that kind of pace. The problem with him is obviously sustaining it. Uh, and so... It's an, it's a really interesting battle. Obviously, England need more quick bowlers for sure. Yeah. But there are other ways to take Test wickets, um, and we are seeing that for sure. Probably the least of our concerns when it comes to England is which battery of quicks, so-called seamers, yeah, do they put on the park? Yeah, I, I think we might as well move on because we we all pretty much said the same with the with the seamers. Um, what one name I mentioned? I didn't pick in my squad, but if I was picking another one, I'd then go Liam Norwell. He had a really good summer, slightly taller. I think he bowls a bit like Scott Boland and he got five for against Australia A as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, Bryden Cass, if he'd been fit, I yeah. looked at him. Uh, he, um, yeah, he got himself injured in November, but he would have been on that Lions tour. He would have been involved in that. He's an interesting bowler. He is sharp through the air, bit of pace, bit of height as well. Moving on to the spinners. Um, ben, who have you gone for? 
Uh, so I've gone for Jack Leach and Matt Parkinson mm. in sort of in, in Phil's vein. Do I need to talk about Matt Parkinson again? I, I guess the one thing is, is that there's, there's, we, we, we still don't know whether or not he is the best spinner in England, basically. And at some point, I think they are just going to have to give him a go and see how he gets on and see if those, like, if he is just a weird outlier in terms of having a, a brilliant record bowling in the county championship in, in England and is still somehow not a spinner who can take wickets at an international level, or if that is just a good indicator. And if lots of stuff that you can see is a good indicator that he is actually a bowler who has the ability to take wickets of top-class batters in like a variety of conditions. And I think that there is a reasonable chance that he is that. And I think England should find out at some point, basically, even if he is like a bit slower than normal spinner, you like that could easily be that, that that's what allows him, I think to get so much action, the ball and like that you, you do see how that like, how that falls bat- batters basically. Like it can be a good thing to be an outlier in a variety of different ways. And that's what he is. And I don't think we'll know until we try basically. So you, cause I, I picked both Leach and Parkinson as well, but are you saying you would have Parkinson as your spinner for the first test? Oh, I mean, they actually, they picked two for the first test last time, didn't they? Had Moen mm. and Rashid, Rashid, which yeah. didn't work out very well. No. Um, uh, I'm, I, I, I'd be happy to leave that to the, to, to, to Chris and Joe on the ground because <laughs> we're the selectors. We don't pick the 11. Uh, but, but I, I think, I think there's becoming more and more of a case. responsibilities well, are very well, authentic. Well, well, so you well, do. I, I, one, one of us is the coach. Mm. One of us is coaching. Because so that's the new system. That's, that's, well, it's that's not, the way it works. It's not me. I've not played test Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think, yeah, as I said, I would Leach and Parkinson, but I would still start the series with Leach as my spinner. I think he's just, he's just never let England down when, the ball is turning and, and I expect it to in the Caribbean and I don't think what we saw in the ashes should mean that he has lost his spot I thought you know that was as, as much back poor management as it was poor bowling really uh probably more poor management than more poor bowling yeah um, um, I, I would start with Leach as well he would be my premier spinner going into it um I picked Parkinson M and I also picked Parkinson C got three spinners mm. Parkinson C is a one-day spinner by trade, but he's becoming a more more than useful red ball spinner. He took fifty wickets, Joe, last year. Yeah, um, and bowls lot bowls lots and lots of overs. That's the thing. Right. He's, he's used to doing it in a way that almost exactly no that. One else is. And, and this is what I, this is why I pop, popped him in there. Certainly, first of all, in in the West Indies, you know, they can be quite sort of crabby pitches, um, and finger spinners can be quite useful out there. Uh, I wanted them to have a look at him. What struck me, Taha made a brilliant point about Leach after Brisbane. And he said, don't often think it, but maybe he could benefit from playing a little bit more white ball cricket. So you mm. have a few more options when someone's coming at you. Well, Callum Parkinson's made his name as a left arm orthodox spinner, uh, trying to keep control of a, of a cricket match. Um, and he did well in the 100 uh, for Stokes' team, the Superchargers. And he's done very well for Leicestershire with the white ball. So that kind of combination of an emerging red ball spinner with a white ball history, I think that's quite an interesting option for England potentially. Now, mm. I don't know how good he is. I don't know if he comes up against test match players and he might just be milked, as you see. You see it with Leach as well. Uh, but the fact that he has such a good white ball record suggests that he'll back himself to land it when he ne- where he needs to. And that is so much of the battle in test cricket. It's not really about how dramatically you're going to rag one past the outside edge. It's not really about that. It's mm. about how much control you can exert. And I just thought three spinners in the West Indies sort of makes sense. Two of them are left armers, admittedly. Um, but yeah, I threw him in there as another as another mm. outlier. I think, I think though, we're going to have to go Leach and Parkinson M, um, just with two, given that's 
what most of us went for. Uh, so our final 18-man squad is Zach Crawley, Dom Sibley, Alex Lees, David Milan, Joe Root, Ben Stokes, Dan Lawrence, Joe Clark, Johnny Bairstow, Ben Folks, Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad, Mark Wood, Ollie Robinson, Sakeem Mahmood, Chris Wokes, Jack Leach and Matt Parkinson. Um, yeah, pretty pretty happy with that. Um, we had one question that's quite interesting um, from Polly. He asked, Adam Rashid has 10 first-class hundreds over 500 first-class wickets. Of a high first-class batting average in Zach Crawley. Why aren't England bowling a test, building a test bowling attack around him? Uh, I guess his shoulder, right? He, shoulder. He's played so little first-class cricket over such a long period of time. Um, Obviously, when did he last score a first-class hundred? I, 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 <laughs> yes. I, and he, he was a genuine all-rounder when he first came through, yeah. but he, he just hasn't batted in red ball cricket mm. had a proper season it for ages I, I think that is a little bit of a, a red herring you that. never got the sense he enjoyed playing red ball cricket either yeah I think he was at, he's at ease in the white ball game he knows that his legacy is assured I don't think he has the kind of character to go and own a test match bowling attack uh, I don't think he has the willpower to come back into it and how many more times can we go back to him and say oh go on but it will yeah, be one rash, of the just, just give us another one it will be one of the, the great what ifs if you think kind of I don't know People who fall for cricket in, in 20 years' time and you look at Rashid's record and you see he's a World Cup winner and you look at his test record and you're like, well, what what happened there? Mm. And, and 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 we won't really have a clear answer. Um, mm. Did well in his only home summer as well. Yeah. Now time for something slightly different. Joining me over Zoom is Duncan Stone, the author of Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket. Duncan, it's great to have you on. Um, there's not really a book out there like it. So you look at the, the history of the recreational game in this country, the underlying class divide that has long existed within it. Um, can you tell us, first of all, why did you write this book? And to you, what is the book about? The reason I wrote the book is, as you say, nobody had ever done it before. Uh, and the, the sort of the main sort of subject matter only really became to my, came to my attention when I was at university. So I did first a, a master's in sociology of sport, and then after a seven-year hiatus, I then developed what I did for my dissertation at Leicester, which was a comparative study of uh, the regional cricket identities of Yorkshire and Surrey, and obviously how did two completely different regional identities develop around the same game in different parts of the country. And then I did a PhD in history at Huddersfield, which concentrated on the on Surrey and the home counties and how and why they that region developed uh, an image of friendly or non-competitive cricket. Thereafter, uh, it was an itch I had to scratch, and I've spent the last sort of uh, like thirteen years expanding that research into a broader social and cultural history of cricket in England as a whole. But obviously, I would argue it's it's not like a regular cricket history, which is obviously top-down. Not only is do I look at the game from the bottom up, I think it actually is a very good way that, you know, through the lens of cricket, a very good way of actually looking at it's just the social and cultural history of this country as a whole. Mm. Um, I think it's fair to describe it as quite a punchy book at times. Uh, you criticise the reporting, for example, of Neville Cardus. You call him uh, the game's most foremost propagandist, uh, I think, in the opening chapter. Um, 
as 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 you say, you're, you're, you've done something that, that that hasn't really been done before. So, after all these years of research, kind of like, what what are your main takeaways? Like giving too much away about um, the, the history of recreational cricket and the, and, and and the underlying class divide that, that is within it. Right, uh, the million dollar question. So, personally, what I take away in, in a broader sort of context is that the social upper classes of this country uh, detest meritocracy. And what what they want out of uh, suppressing meritocracy, obviously, is the maintenance of their own power. Uh, What we witnessed in Surrey and the home counties was the banning of meritocratic competition. And that is where the friendly, non-competitive image of uh, the recreational game in the South emerged. So that is something that I think is warrants much broader uh, attention and uh, knowledge. Um, And then I think in in more, and again, I think using sport as a way of viewing how this country actually works and operates. And I think cricket is very revealing in that. Uh, and I and I think it would have a broad appeal, not just to people who uh, closely follow cricket, but social history and culture in this country more more generally. Mm. Um, yeah, as I, as I told you before we start recording, I'm I'm really enjoying it so far. And I think one thing that's blindingly obvious is is your enthusiasm for the game. Um, you're not you're not looking at it. Obviously, you are looking at it from a historical point of view, but it's clear that you love the game. You love playing it. I love your descriptions of your teammates. Um, was it Fairlands Cricket Club? I think I think a lot of uh, a lot of the of the descriptions of your teammates will resonate with listeners and their their teammates around the country as well. Um, I mean, I've got got to ask you: the accessibility of English cricket has been in the limelight more than usual in the last few weeks after England's latest overseas Ashes debacle. There's been a lot of focus on how many of the England team are privately educated and what that figure compares to uh, not only past English teams from previous decades, but also just the national divide. Um, does, your, does your book shed some more light on some of those issues behind that problem? And, and yeah, do you have any opinions on that? Yes, I think, I think, well, it's chronic. It's a chronic problem, not just the cricket, but I would say British society as a whole. Uh, many British institutions such as cricket uh, have always, and I mean always, been run in the interest of a small minority of people. And that is, uh, regret to say, um, white middle class men. Uh, now the image of cricket, particularly English cricket, uh, reflects that. You know, it's a posh sport, you know, much like but the union uh, is seen as a posh or middle-class sport. Uh, and I actually think that the accessibility problem, as badly as the, and disingenuously as the game's been run and presented to the public, I think uh, socio-political changes over the last 40 years have actually made that worse. And I talk about this in the book, about how civil society has been hollowed out uh, over the last 40 years. And that has had a, a very direct effect on uh, the participation in cricket. So the, the uh, attacks on um, 
trade unionism and you had uh, obviously privatization uh, of certain businesses or, or the, the wholesale selling off or closure, the deindustri industrialization meant the end of workplace sport. And workplace cricket was one of the most vibrant realms of cricket in the country. And in terms of more recent revelations uh, pertaining to Azim Rafiq, it was arguably the most successful, uh, if you can call it, experiment in race relations. Workplace sport nationwide, but most likely cricket, was the most successful multiracial enterprise in the country. But by the late 1990s, that was all gone. Factory mm. and obviously the sale of more than 10,000 state school playing fields uh, since 1981 up until 1997. Obviously, we've sold an awful lot more since then. It's a perfect storm as, as far as working class access to the game is concerned. Multiracial mm. access uh, more broadly. Uh, but as much as race and racism is a very serious problem in cricket at all levels, uh, I do conclude that social class is the underlying problem of all of these mm. things that we're all up in arms about at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. So I think a lot of people listening to this who play regular club cricket will will will, ex will have experienced. Uh, many games where you have one side that is predominantly white against a side that is probably predominantly from Asian backgrounds. I mean, you you know more about this stuff than anyone else. What, what, what do you think English cricket can do? do you, first of all, do you think that is necessarily a problem in 2022? And two, if you think it is, what, what do you think can be done about it? I think the main problem is the lack of open... What football did correctly from 1871 is that, and then subsequently the formation, so that 1871 is the FA Cup, and then obviously you had the Football League thereafter, was the organisation of football in a open, socially open, meritocratic pyramid. That is something that cricket has never been organised in any shape or form in an open way. The county championship from the get-go uh, was run in the interests of uh, the counties and its members. The general public as a whole barely got a look in, and it's been a closed shop ever since. Now, if, you know, when nobody has to sort of look over their shoulder, then there's no um, sort of uh, motivation for really pursuing any kind of excellence, uh, or at least broadening your horizons uh, as far as recruitment policy is concerned. Uh, so, for the last 150 years, you know, English cricket has not been organised in an open, meritocratic fashion. And that goes for the lower recreational game as well. So, if you want things to change, you've got to start opening doors uh, for talented outsiders, and there's lots of obviously talented South Asian teams out there, but because they invariably rely, rely upon municipal grounds or even artificial wickets, it's immediately a door in their face. Hmm. Uh, so you have these structural barriers, irrespective of collective and individual racism, which clearly is out there, you 
a lot of these people who are racist and many who aren't seem to want to preserve the status quo. They don't want anyone to be rocking the boat. They've got a cosy little world that has existed undisturbed for uh, many, many generations, uh, and they don't want that upset. So they hide behind these structural, they may not have been put in place uh, specifically to do this, but that is the effect, like it or not. Uh, it is a ready-made excuse for keeping certain people out of the mainstream of English cricket. And then, of course, uh, more recently, the last couple of days, we've had you know US players uh, barely aping about how much it's costing their kids <laughs> to go through a problem when at least they can afford that sort of money. Uh, again, working class people, parents, you know, if they're a one-car family, you know, that's bad enough. If both parents are working, which is very much uh, the norm these days, you know, not like when I was a kid and, and basically mum worked part-time, but not, you know, full-time. Uh, there is no, there is no time and no spare income for driving kids to very expensive uh, county trials here, there and everywhere. So there's an awful lot of talent going to waste. Uh, and I think the very first thing that should be done, you can argue the thoughts about how you went about it, but it's opening the doors to competition once again. Uh, you know, much like I talked about in the early stages of the book, uh, when cut and lead competition was first introduced, that and not a few iconic amateurs in the long run at Lords. That is what made cricket a national game. And it's what made football the people's game. Now, if we want cricket to have any kind of healthy, vibrant future, we need to be a people's game and not something exclusively uh, for, you know, white, middle-class, privately educated chaps. <laughs> As lovely as they all are, I'm sure. Mm. Well, very well put. I mean, I've got, you mentioned in, in at the start of the book who this book is dedicated to, and you say it's for the people who truly have the best interests of cricket at heart. That is who the book is dedicated for. And I think, um, yeah, just to, to reiterate that, I think I've really, really enjoyed it so far. And Duncan, it's been great having you on the podcast. Um, and listeners, if you're interested in buying the book, head to repeaterbooks.com and we'll leave a link in the description of this episode. Cheers again, Duncan. Thanks for your time. Um, Joe, what's your, what's your moment of the week? Uh, my moment of the week is uh, some county cricket. We've had a few bits of county cricket news come through over the last week or so. Uh, I don't know if you're going to touch on them, but we've Otis Gibson become head coach at Yorkshire, which is big news. Um, and Vikram Salonki has, has left his role as head coach at Surrey. So that's a big, big roll up for grabs there. But mine were two, two overseas signings at, at Somerset who, well, it's usually about a month from now I'm tipping them for the county championship, but I've, I've gone early. Um, signed up Peter Siddle and Matt Renshaw, obviously Australian seamer, Australian opener. They're going to be around, I think, Siddle until early August, Renshaw until late August. Um, and uh, Renshaw's available for Red Bull cricket and 50 over comp and Siddle's available for the whole lot. Um, they've also got uh, Marshall Delanger as another. Overseas. They've got three overseas players to fit into two spots, which is quite interesting. Um, it shows, I guess, that Somerset must be doing okay financially to be able to kind of take 
and they they're desperate for silverware and they had such a good start last year they were they topped their their group uh, and then when they got into division 1 they lost all four of their games their batting just absolutely fell to pieces it hadn't been great all season but it just kind of completely disappeared without trace uh Renshaw when he was there in 2018 scored 3 3 tons average 50 for the year if you get a top order batter doing that in county cricket well you're, you're well on your way to having a good season because as we know very few of them do it um, so I think it's, it's, it's interesting I think that that side looks looks well balanced they've got a good thing going at the club so this is obviously finally <laughs> finally the year Elsewhere South Africa beat India 3-0 in Virat Kohli's first ODI series since losing the captaincy um, Ben in, India's balance wasn't quite right without Jadeja Venkatesh I has been picked as an all-rounder but his, his bowling probably isn't good enough to bank more than the odd over here and there um, and then in the end, they they they, they went for the, the bowling all-rounders to bat seven and they actually did pretty well. Deepak Shahar almost pulled off um, an incredible run chase at the end to to get them a consolation win there. But yeah, it didn't, didn't really quite work out for India. No, I guess because, I mean, they've had this, this game plan that has been based around their top three getting loads and loads of runs and then their bowlers being good enough to defend them. Uh, their bowlers are probably like a little bit just down on form and just kind of like not not quite at that level that they have been at and it's the same in their top three and that does actually weaken them a reasonable amount I guess with with a game plan like England's you can actually you can almost carry a couple players in poor form because you are counting on that whole kind of top seven to get you up to the the really big total that you're, that you're going for so you actually if you have a guy and also England's players fail in, in a way so slightly less damaging ways like Kara Hall got a bit of criticism I think in the second game for making quite a slow half century and Rishabh Pant bailed them out with like a, a very quick 80 odd he, he played really well actually and he, uh that that is one positive for India but in England you wouldn't exactly get someone scratching around to a score in that same way they would probably just throw the work away quite quickly which uh obviously as you saw in the first T20 I could be quite damaging but uh so yeah I mean India have quite a bit to think probably because because even their, their spinners were out bowled by South Africa spinners and so thinking that going to a, a home world cup that actually it doesn't matter too much how they're their quicks are going because they can just pick three brilliant spinners and they will have wicket takers in there. Actually, even that doesn't look quite as certain as it as it would have done. So yeah, there Ashwin are... didn't have a great series in his first ODI series series in five years, I think. Yeah, so there's there there is quite a lot for them to consider. But but yeah, the, and I guess it's it's how much do they try and sort of rip up the rule book a year out from a World Cup? Do they sort of say, okay, we're going to pick a guy like Pretty Sure at the top of the order who has license to sort of try and get us off to a flyer and uh, and sort of pick guys like that through the middle as well or they think no we're going to keep going with three solid guys who will make hundreds regularly uh who can get us up to 300 320 pretty like 80 percent of the time and we back up always to defend that i don't know it's a, it's a tricky one um yeah it's worth mentioning the south african batters had a really good series as well de Kock, player of the match in the last two games scored his 17th odi ton in the finale and there were hundreds for bavuma and van der dusen early in the series as well um Joe, elsewhere, Australia are now top of the world test ranking despite not having played an away test match in years. What do you make of that? Oh, it's a travesty. <laughs> no, I, I can't bring myself to, be, to to get too upset about it, really. Um, I don't it it just sums it up on a macro level. If you don't play, you're a better player. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's. I don't think there's a huge amount to choose between them, New Zealand and India. I'd back any of them to win their home test series and then, you know, probably lose as many as they win away from home that's how it's that's how it's played out but I do think that that they do seem like quite a clear top three I would have said although I suppose South Africa just turned over India so maybe they have to be 
considered in that bracket as well. It's certainly been a fantastic uh, month or so for South African cricket, hasn't it? Yeah, Great. absolutely. And we'll we'll get to. Um, I guess we'll get, we'll learn a lot more about Australia in the next year or so with their away series in 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 Asia. Um, the, the story isn't so much that Australia have gone to number one despite not playing a test match away from home so long. It's how has it managed to be that Australia haven't played a test match away from home in so long, and it has been because of that. Like they they are increasingly as a as as a board and as a sort of cricketing economy willing to just like sort of cut out all the games which they think won't make the money. And, and and you see, you see that with some of the games that they have chosen to cancel and then the lengths they have gone to to get the games at home against England and India on does speak a, a large amount about where their priorities lie, which doesn't say great things about the health of the game globally. I mean, globally, like it's not something that Australia by themselves do. Like you do get other teams uh, putting out of series that they think they can afford to get rid of. And I mean, England uh, haven't been. Exactly, yeah. yeah but it's, uh, it's, and that's, that's basically the focus of Adam Collins' column for our latest issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly and, and he said look, he's been as critical as, as anyone about Australia picking and choosing the tours that suit them and their treatment of Bangladesh who they cancelled Bangladesh tour without even giving a press release uh, a few years back but he said he, he sees kind of reason to be optimistic around Cricket Australia now they've got a, a, an Asian triple header a Pakistan series should be a belt that should be a really really good series and then India and I think they've got Sri Lanka as well yeah. Um, and Nick Hockley, the, the CEO of Cricket Australia, is kind of making the right noises. He acknowledged that Australia needed to do more for the benefit of world cricket as a whole. So Adam wasn't saying all hail Cricket Australia, everything's great, but he was saying that there are better things being said coming out of the, the organisation and let's just see how they go over the next year. And they are going to Pakistan, that seems quite clear, barring anything and unfortunate. And Usman Khawaj has talked really passionately about the importance of, of those tours, saying that, Pakistan fans have never seen Steve Smith or Dave Warner in the flesh. What what an experience! And and you're boosting the game as a whole, um, and in and Pakistan. So m- maybe this is maybe this is the start of a new under under Cummins. You know, you got the nice captain. Perhaps suddenly Cricket Australia is a is an organisation that um, is a bit more open minded, a bit more a bit more global, perhaps. Mm. Um, and finally, uh, or oh, not quite finally, but in Australia, um, it's worth mentioning how Gloucester's. Ian Cobain's doing. He's having a, a brilliant BBL after being called up late. He's 34 years old, not played a huge amount of overseas cricket, um, and he's been player of the match in two of his five games so far, including uh, the Strikers' most recent knockout game. Um, there are two more matches to go in a very, very long BBL season. Um, I saw Sam Billings of the day basically saying, I love the tournament, but it's just too long, which I think everything, everyone I think can agree with there. Um, ben, to finish off your moment of the week oh my moment of the week is uh is from the bangladesh premier league uh, obviously and uh, <laughs> uh a, an amazing uh, almost unprecedented sort of run out uh of andre russell where he was batting i can't remember he was batting with actually but he sort of plays it sort of deftly into the uh just behind square on the offside for a single runs through uh it's clearly worried about his partner so he's looking over his shoulder as the ball hits the stumps at the striker's end, sort of skews off and comes straight down the pitch and hits the stumps at the non-striker's end, and he's he's run out by by a reasonable margin. Uh, and it's yeah, I mean, you, it's kind of thing you'd think you'd never seen before, but apparently, according to Roebelinter, two, it did happen in a 1976 ODI. Uh, I don't think there was actually a, a an actual run out in that situation, but you did have the ball cannon off one set of stumps mm. into the other, uh, and this did make me look up the run out law Here in the uh, in the laws of cricket. Uh, and I think technically, uh, if a batter plays uh, a shot and their bat breaks as they play the shot, 
a fielder can pick up the bit of bat that's broken and if the batters go for a single they can run them out with that bit of bat rather than the ball i think if you look at the laws on what constitutes the wicket being legally put down uh you can do it with a bit of broken bat like it so that allows for if a batter breaks their bat and the bat comes into the stumps then knocks the bails off they'll be out in that situation uh but because of that and because to run some notes you have to legally put the wicket down by the action of a fielder the wicket keep the wick the fielder could pick up the bit of bat and knock the bails off and uh and do them that way if um, you triple check this are you 100 percent sure that's a law oh uh, I'd, I'd really like to be corrected uh, <laughs> <laughs> i think we should set this as a challenge to any club cricketers as well if you can pull this off and also get it given us out in a, in a game this summer. <laughs> That'd be some going. We should definitely do it. Th- We've been looking up a few of cricket's more obscure laws for a thing on wisdom.com that's coming up soon. Uh, we and should just because defi- Ben enjoys it as well. Yeah, that's true. Um, we, should, we should definitely do a segment on the pod on cricket's strangest laws because there, there are a few really strange ones that I don't think many people will know about. Anyway, uh, well done for making it to the end. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Ben. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We will be back next week. Podcast Network.